Amen, amen. Uh, this is my favorite day of the week. Not lying, not just saying that because I'm here. There is literally nowhere else I would rather be. You could give me all of the riches in the world, but apart from the people of God, the presence of God, with the praises of God and the word of God, I would not miss it. If, if I'm ever not here on a Sunday, I'm worshiping somewhere else, or I am dead. I love Jonathan's illustration last week of the uh, U-graph, where the Sunday is the highlight of my week, and then uh, this, this really is a privilege and honor to dwell with the people of God, because church is not the building or the structure or any, uh, any of that. It is the, the people of God worshiping God. Amen. And my desire this morning as we get into this psalm, uh, I love this psalm, and it's very convicting for those of us who are not naturally emotional, because you read the way the psalmist approaches the presence of God, and you're like, I want that. I want that. And my prayer this morning is that we have the joy that the psalmist does. Because be honest, this is not optional for the believer. And in our culture, it's become optional. Well, I'll go to church this week. I won't go to church next week. And I realize the irony of saying that to those who are in church this morning. But we all have that internal conversation with ourselves on Sunday morning. Well, it's a really nice day today. Or I've got this other thing going on. But when we read this, how could we ever miss an opportunity to be with the saints and sing the praises of our Lord? And so... This psalm, Psalm 84, is written by the sons of Korah, which we've looked at before. And the sons of Korah were a Levite family. They were, they were worship leaders in the best sense of the word, in that they led with the instruments, they led with their voices, but they also wrote the music. The priests were the keepers of the law and the keeper of, uh, keepers of doctrine, and they would write down this doctrine so that the people could sing. And, and so they did this day in and day out, especially the sons of Korah, in the presence of the Lord in the temple. So they were temple servants. So this is kind of a day in the life of temple servants, writing from their perspective what it's like to see people come and worship in, in the temple, but to be in the presence of God all year round. And they are joyful and they are excited to be in the presence of God. So I, think of, I, I could think of no better way to get us excited about this psalm than to read from Charles Spurgeon. I was really tempted after reading Spurgeon's commentary to just read it and sit down. Because I'm like, I, I can't do that. So I'm going to read Spurgeon, and then you're going to be stuck with me for the rest of this. I'm going to give you excerpts from his introduction. It's so beautiful. He says, This psalm well deserved to be committed to the noblest of the sons of song. Man, sons of Korah calls them sons of song. It's great. No music could be too sweet for its theme or too exquisite in sound to match the beauty of its language. Sweeter than the joy of the winepress. So, uh, according to Giddith, Giddith is associated with, with winepress. Sweeter than the joy of the winepress is the joy of the holy assemblies of the Lord's house. Not even the favored children of grace, who are like the sons of Korah, can have a richer subject for song than Zion's sacred festival. It matters little when this psalm was written or by whom. For our part, it exhales to us a Davidic perfume. It smells of the mountain heather and of the lone places of the wilderness, where King David must have often lodged during his many years. This sacred ode is one of the choicest of the collection. It has a mild radiance about it. 
entitling it to be called the Pearl of the Psalms. This is one of the most sweet of the Psalms of Peace. Amen. So, before we get, begin this psalm, it is a sweet psalm. It is a psalm of peace. And to help us understand it, we need to understand what themes are repeated in here and, and clarify some of these terms. So, the three things you're going to see repeated most often is uh, house, dwelling, courts, anything related to the temple itself. Second, we're going to see attributes of God. There are many attributes of God in here. And from what we see in those attributes of God, it's going to teach us much about God and teach us about worship. But the other thing we're going to see repeated is the word blessed. And so I want to go over each one of those individually before we read our psalm so that you have this in mind when you're reading. So when you see house, when you see courts, you see dwelling place, this is the temple in Israel. This is on Zion, God's holy mount. And this is not just the building. This is where worship happens because this is where God is. And that's what's most important here. Not the building itself, but who dwells there, what it represents. Because they don't long for a building, they long for a being. They're not going to a place, they're going for his presence. And that is what this psalm is dealing with. And so we cheapen it when we make it about a building, we make it about a a brand or an edifice or, or, or a design. It is only because you are coming with the people of God before God himself. And so just like it wasn't really about the temple then, it really isn't about the church now. And so we have to resist the, the modern temptation to just think about a place, to just think about four walls, or just think about carpets, pews, whatever else it is. That's not the point. We also have to remember this is written to Israel who had to go to the temple to be before the presence of God. And so what was temporary and locational for Israel is now permanent and spiritual for us. And we're going to be drawing on a lot of those, those parallels. Because for them, there was one specific house and one specific place where the Lord dwells. But now, in Christ, we are members of the household of God. Christ himself being the cornerstone. We are the living stones that make up that building. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. And so all of this imagery should remind us of what we have in Christ because this is all throughout the New Testament, and we're going to pull in a lot of these passages this morning. And so as we read this psalm, you know, read it as it applies to those who would go to the temple and worship, but see it, the greater reality that we have in Christ, being the people of God. God who desires to dwell with his people and dwell within his people. So that's the house, the attributes of God. We're going to see many different ways that the psalmist describes God and names God, and each one of them is significant. Each one of them should direct our worship because it directs who we, who we are worshiping and who he is and, and how we, we understand him. And so the house means nothing if you don't know who dwells in it. And so pay attention to these, these words, and it's not just about coming to a place, it's about coming to a person, and who that, that, that person is, the person of our God, and there's so much that the psalmists, in their heart of, of praise, day in and day out, focusing on the things of God, can teach us by how they speak about God. Uh, the next thing we're going to see repeated three times, blessed. Anytime in Scripture you see something repeated three times, Holy, holy, holy. 
It is in the superlative, meaning it is to the utmost. So we've got three stanzas this morning that are broken up by the sailors. Basically a music marker. We're not sure exactly what it means, but we know that it, that it breaks up the, the flow, especially in this psalm. We've got three clear stanzas. But in each one of those, there's the word blessed. Now this word has been watered down in our culture. It has been thrown around, and people don't really understand what it means. They, they, they seem, well, I feel blessed because I've got this thing, this thing, this thing, making it material. In the Hebrew, this word asher, is, it's, it's a state of being. It is what you are because of what has been done to you. It is an overflowing joy, an uncomparable contentment in God. And it's because of God's favor, because of what he has placed on you and placed within you, you're not dependent on situations or material things because God has given you everything you need. And so when you read, blessed it is, it is wholeness, it is completeness, it is peace because the favor of God dwells on you. It is a state of being. And so everything we've done in our service has led us up to read this. We began with Revelation 4, where we get a, we get a picture in the throne room of God. If we ever lose sight of what it means to call upon God and call Him holy, read Revelation 4 where the most amazing creatures won't even open their eyes before his throne. And they sing day and night, holy, holy, holy. And every song we sing, we sing, Behold our God to the praise of his glory. The grace that has saved us and brought us into his presence. Every one of the songs we sing and the scriptures we read are leading us up to read this song. And so if you have your Bibles, please open up to Psalm 84. Psalm 84. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the, shallow, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at, her, at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Amen. Let's pray. Behold our God. 
our shield, our satisfaction, our security, our strength, our healer, redeemer, our savior. There's so much to praise you for. Blessed are those who sing your praises forever. Just to be near you is to be blessed. But in your grace and mercy, you drew near to us. Because in our own strength, we would never draw near to you. Lord, we praise you. As a God who seeks and saves the lost, who brings them into your presence, that we might be with you that we might worship you. Lord, I pray for your people this morning that you would renew in them a desire to be in your presence, a desire to be among the people of God, a desire to grow in your word, a desire to sing your praises, a desire to call out to you in prayer because we need you. We are lost without you. You sustain us. You invigorate us. You encourage us. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We come before you this morning in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. So our outline this morning, we're going to follow these stanzas. We're going to look at the satisfaction that the psalmist have in God. We're going to look at the, the, the strength that those traveling to the temple have in God, when we look at the security that the people of God have in Him. And we're also going to see how each one of these marks the Christian life. How we should be satisfied in Him. How our strength should be in Him, and we should go to Him for our security. So let's begin in verse 1. O Lord, God of my salvation. My Bible flipped, I was on the wrong page. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. This word lovely, tied to the word beloved, it is, it is near to the heart of the psalmist. Why? Why is this lovely? Why is it near to the heart of the psalmist? Because it's your dwelling place. Why is it lovely? Because God, you are there. If it wasn't covered with gold, if it didn't have purple curtains, if it, if it wasn't massive and majestic, it would be lovely because you are there. This is where it begins, knowing rightly that it is the presence and place of God. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. We've gone over this in the past few Psalms, Lord of hosts. The Elohim Sabaoth, the, the, the God of, of the heavenly hosts, the armies in heaven. That is who you are and you dwell here in this temple that we could come visit you. And we cheapen it in Hallmark cards and little gimmicks that talk about the presence of God as, being, as floating on clouds with, with, with harps and, and angels and all that crap. Let me tell you what the presence of God looks like because Isaiah was there. You turn to Isaiah 6. Isaiah was, was there. Isaiah saw it. God opened his eyes and his response should be ours. And the fact that God, who is so powerful and so awesome and so majestic, would allow us to come before Him and encourages us to come before Him. It's just amazing. Isaiah 6, verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, 
and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. When the psalmist says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. His hosts right now are flying around him, covering their eyes. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah responds, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of, an, of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This psalm beckons God's people to come into his presence. The earthly shadow of, of, his, of, his, of his heavenly throne. And as his people, we are allowed to come before the throne of God. And How often do we take that lightly? How often do we, do we cheapen it? And listen to caricatures of this, this muted, impotent God in a muted, impotent heaven that, that, that means nothing. Our God reigns on a throne of glory. And the psalmist calls it lovely, because that is where he dwells. It is so lovely that it encompasses his entire being. Psalm 27.4, what a beautiful psalm. It says, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I may seek after. Lord, if you just give me one thing, only one thing, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. That is why the psalmist can say in verse 2, my soul longs, yes, faints. God, if there's only one thing, that is where I want to be in your presence. My soul faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. It so consumes him. His soul, his heart, his flesh, everything about him wants to be in the presence of God. Complete satisfaction in him. Spurgeon says about this, a holy appetite is better than any church bell. Now, we don't have church bells anymore, but if you're old enough to, to remember that or know the, the, the concept that the bell would ring, people know when church was starting. But there's a holy appetite. I don't need an alarm. I don't need a church bell. My heart wakes me up because I want to be in the presence of God. Man, I wish I felt like this. Man, I wish I had that desire. I want this. I pray for this. Do you have this? If you do, give me some. And this is my prayer for me. This is my prayer for you that as we come in God's house on Sunday morning, it is not his house because it's in the, between these four walls that it has become because his people gather that we feel like this. But we don't come as visitors. We come as residents. Look at John chapter 14. We love John chapter 14 because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And this is, this is the, the gospel place before you. No one comes to the Father before, but yet through me. But if we understand its context, it's even more beautiful. Jesus begins John chapter 14, verse 1, with, Let not your hearts be troubled. In this world of trouble, in this world of difficulty, let not your hearts be troubled. Why? Why not? 
How can we have confidence? Believe in God. Believe also in me. We can have confidence because God is sure. Because Christ is God. But he kind of opens, he unveils heaven to them a little bit. In my Father's house are many rooms. Fear not. My Father has a house. If it were not so, I would not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. This place that the psalmist is singing about, his whole soul, heart, and mind, and body want to be there, Jesus says, I'm preparing that for you. The presence of God, there's a house and there's a room for you. What do you have to be afraid of? This is in the context where Thomas says in verse 5, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The way to my Father's house. The place of eternal rest. The place of eternal peace. I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would also have known my Father. But from now on, you do not. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. If you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father. And if you have seen Jesus for who he is, and if you believe in him, there is a, there is a room in this house. Not the temple that was to fall. Not the temple where the, where the veil was ripped. But the eternal temple. Jesus Christ himself on earth forever. He prepares a place there. The house of the living God. Makes no sense. There is no use worshiping a God who is dead. There is no use longing for the presence of someone who has no life in him in himself. But if he is alive, if he did rise from the grave and he is seated on the right hand of God, then everything changes because our God is alive. And Jesus says, I guarantee you, I will go and I'll prepare a place for you. Everything that the psalmist longs for is already ours in Christ. And he is holding it for us. The bed is made. The room is set up. The feast is spread out. That is what we long for. Not because we have to earn it or we can't, we can't get there yet, but because it's already ours. This is amazing about when you look into the Psalms and the things that the, the psalmists just get a glimpse of, we have in full in Christ. This is why we gather. This is why we come together, because this is ours. We gather here because we want to know the living God, the living God who sent His Son to redeem us, who rose from the grave that we might have life in Him, and to enjoy Him. Hopefully this is why you're here. Because you get a little glimpse of the courts of heaven where we will be singing holy, holy, holy forever. And the repetition will not get old, I guarantee you. And I'm so thankful for those of you who show up week in and week out and serve and who love to be around the body and who have a joy about your faith just because you're among the people of God, singing the praises of God, hearing the word of God. And what you do matters. You minister to me each and every week. Your smiles and your hugs and your encouragement is an encouragement to everyone who walks through this door because we know what it means to have a God who communes with his people. A God who saves his people and saves a place for them. Our hope is in him and our identity is eternal. 
And I want to encourage you to keep doing that and do it with an eternal perspective. This is why we gather. And it is a blessing to the people of God, but even the least of God's creatures, verse 3, even the sparrow finds a home. Even the sparrow. Sparrows are not prized birds. There were so many of them in Israel that they were almost worthless. Jesus says two of them are sold for a farthing. Basically, their least valuable copper coin. You can get two of them for the least valuable throwaway coin that you can pick up off the ground. That's how many of them there are. But even the sparrow finds a home. This is quite possible that the priest is watching the birds come in and out of of the temple and reflecting on this. But the spiritual reality is even the most worthless creature has value because he's made by God. Even the most worthless creature is cared for in his temple. I love what Donald Barnhouse says about this. Um, Pastor now, now passed on. But he says, I look down some little street, see a humble chapel where a group of simple people worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. I'd like to think that's probably us. Um, despised and rejected of men, even as was their Lord. Here are the sparrows who find their nest at the cross of Jesus Christ. Here is the worthlessness that finds its worth because the Savior died. We are these worthless little sparrows. Even the sparrows find their home. And the swallow a nest for herself. We don't get the, the, the bird analogies because uh, we've got more important things to do with our time than, than learn about birds, but they know the birds really well. The sparrows are worthless. The swallows never sit still. The swallows are flying from day to night. The swallows barely ever rest. They, they, they barely ever stop. And so what this means, you've got the sparrow who's worthless, the, the, so, the swallow who's restless, the swallow nests. The worthless finds worth. The restless finds rest in the temple of God. This is the beauty of this picture. And it's not just any God. The swallow, a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. The Lord cares for the the young of the swallow. How much more would he care for us? At your altars, the Lord of hosts, my God, my King. We already touched on the Lord of hosts. The transcendent God of cosmic spiritual armies, who's worthy of sacrifices. We come to your altar, and you care for the swallows. My King. And my God, my King, you are my ruler. You are the the, the sovereign. All power is to you. You deserve my allegiance and I submit to you. I call you my King. It is personal. You are mine. I submit to you. But you are my God. This transcendent God of cosmic powers is also imminent. His personal communion with me. He's my God. The God who is above all things walks with me who condescends and dwells in a holy temple that I might approach him. The God who created heavens and earth creates a people for himself. My king, my God, I get to come before you because you have made yourself known to me. This is amazing. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. Blessed are those who understand that, verse 4. Blessed. God is so awesome, so majestic, so splendid, So amazing. Just to be near him is to be blessed. It is a state of being to be in his presence. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. 
ever singing your praises. If you're in the presence of God, what else could you do but praise? But even more so for us, because we don't have to travel to his house to see him. We are part of his household through the Holy Spirit. Look at Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, 19 through 20. The identity change that happened to the church. This is part of who we are now. Ephesians 2.19 So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The psalmist comes to this house, we are the house, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The temple that used to be in Israel is no longer needed because the temple is his people. He is the cornerstone. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You are members of the household of God. You are a temple for the living God. So the one who is blessed, who's in the house singing praises, how much more blessed is it to be the household of God, your identity to be a temple? It's blessed to be in the temple, but what about being a temple yourself? Because God has sent his spirit to dwell within you. How blessed is that? So that's our first stanza, only 30 minutes in. Got two more to go. Uh, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. So this, this next stanza is those who are journeying to the temple. And so Zion, God's holy hill, we're going to talk about that in just a moment. So we get the second blessedness. The first one is blessed are those who find their, their satisfaction, who can just praise God and be good with that. But now there's those who are, who are, who are traveling. Some of them came very long distances to come to the temple in these, in these feasts. Blessed are they because it's the Lord's strength that carries them there. Verse 5, blessed are those whose strength is in you. It is only in the Lord's presence where we can know his strength. And to be strengthened by the Lord is to be blessed. Because no matter how far you come, no matter what you endure, it is God's strength who carries you. And this is amazing. This is profound. Look at the second half of verse 5. In whose heart are the highways to Zion. Now, there is a highway to Zion. There's a way to get to the temple, but the real way is in the heart. Think about that for a moment. The physical journey to the temple is not physical. The way to the presence of the Lord is implanted within the heart. Before they even get to the temple, the heart is already there. Because God is implanted with them. He has written it on their hearts. The true way to get there. Many people may, may travel, but those who truly worship... It is already in their hearts. The way is already written on their their hearts. This is beautiful new covenant language that they got a glimpse of then. And worship is never about anything external in Scripture, ever. It's never about just showing up. It is never about singing. It is never about giving. It is about the heart behind every bit of it. But the way to that worship is, is written in the heart. And on the heart are the highways to the temple, the highways to Zion, God's holy mountain. Look what he says in Psalm 132 about this mountain. 
Psalm 132, I want to pick up in verse 13. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. Get there in just a moment. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. God's dwelling place, he has chosen it forever. And the earthly Zion prefigures or is a shadow of the eternal Zion that we have in the presence of God. But it's also our identity. This word is, is very close to the breast, close to the heart for, for Jews because their identity is in a place. But look at the promises of salvation. Look at Joel 2.32. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Sound familiar? Romans 10. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape. And as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord called. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Citizens of Zion. So there's the promise in Joel. There's the fulfillment in Hebrews 12. Picking up in verse 22. Hebrews 12 22, look at the encouragement to the church. They are citizens of a kingdom that that shall not be shaken, but you have come to Mount Zion. These are people who are still alive. You, right now, you are members of Mount Zion. You have come, you are there, and to the city of the living God, the same living God from our psalm, has invited his saints now to Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, dwelling with all the saints, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Christ has drawn us in. Citizens of Zion, right now if you are in Christ, all of the angels in festal gathering, all the saints throughout history, that same Zion that the psalmist sings about is ours in Christ right now. We, that is our identity. That is where we are citizens. But these travelers are trying to get there. They long to get there. And the way is not always easy, verse 6. And as they go through the valley of Baca, Baca is another name for a balsam tree, but the word itself means, means weeping, it means mourning, it means an emotional condition that has a, a physical outpouring. The, as you walk through the valley of mourning, because it's not always easy, the, the, the trip is not always sure. Even though I walk through the valley of the darkness, the shadow of death I will fear no evil. Look what happens as they go through the valley of Baca. They make it a place of spring because God is with them, because his strength is in them. Even in the valley of mourning, they become in themselves springs of strength. The early rain also covers it with pools. Rain is always a good thing in the Bible. They need water to live. What a beautiful picture of the Christian life. Our journey is always filled or often filled with mourning and difficulty. 
But if our strength is in us, there's like a spring of life-giving water, soothing pools of early rain that nourish the weary traveler, and in that we are blessed. And then the picture of the journey continues. They go from strength to strength. How reassuring is this? If you don't understand what this means, think about it like this. Each step in a journey to go before God, and when you're taking a long journey, what you're always worried about is your footing. Do I have to walk through mud? Do I have to walk through rock? Is it, is it, is it slippery? It's like they go from strength to strength. In this step, you are in his strength. And in this step, you are in his strength. And in this step, you are in his strength. And in this step, you are in his strength. That is the journey of the people of God. Is no matter how difficult it feels, it is his strength in this step. His strength in this step. For those whose heart is in Zion, no matter what the ground may look like, they are always on sure footing. This is the encouragement that the psalmist gives. And each one of them appears before God in Zion. His people will always come before him. His people will always see him. And the psalmist means this for the traveler. But we know this unveiled in the New Testament that each one, no one will be lost. The saints will be preserved. The elect will not be lost. Each one will appear before God in Zion. If you are his, there is nothing anyone can do to snatch you out of his hand. And this is beautiful. Because you walk in his strength, and even if you die, his strength will hold you after your body has failed. Each one appears before God in Zion. His people will always end up in his presence. It's a beautiful promise. And that is why the psalmist in verse 8 is not praying with uncertainty. He's praying with certainty because he knows that God who is his strength, the God who is his satisfaction, O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. He cries out because he knows his God hears. He cries out because he knows the saints will appear before him. He cries out because he knows his God is over all things but loves him intimately. Last stanza here. I'm going to look at what it's like to be in the presence of God, the protection of God, the provision of God, and everything we understand about being in the temple and all the beauty that the psalmist describes here is attached to God's character. We're going to look at each of these aspects of God's character here. We see shield twice. Because God's character, God is a shield and protector of his people. That assures blessedness. It assures security in his house. We begin with behold. There is no more security than when you declare, behold, our God is our shield. God is my shield. It's like the little kid who's being bullied and his dad shows up. Behold, my dad is right there. This is what we do. Our God is our shield. Our God is our protector. Whom shall I fear? When Jesus says, let not your little hearts be troubled. Believe in me. I am your shield. I have your resting place. I have your home. Behold, our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. Now the word anointed here, Mashiach, where we get Messiah from, it's really any anointed office within Israel. Probably the priests here are interceding for the king. They don't realize that prophetically asking God to look on the face of his anointed is looking forward to 
the Messiah. Not a Christ, not a anointed one, but the anointed one. Now this is, a, this is an important prayer because as we've seen in the history of Israel, as goes the king, goes Israel. And so you want to pray for the Lord to look on the king so that the nation does not go astray. But when you look forward to the one who is the anointed one, the Christ, the nation will go as, as he goes. And now because the Father has looked upon the Son, because now he has anointed him, we are protected in him, he is our shield, and we stand in his presence because of him. These are the most important declarations that we see in the New Testament because the light bulbs are going off, the connections are being made. Matthew 16, where Jesus here, let me get to Matthew 16. So Matthew 16, starting in verse 13, where Jesus here asking, who do people say that I am? What's, what's the word on the street? I've been teaching, I've been healing people. Are people getting it? Matthew 16, pick up in, in verse 14. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But he said to them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Blessed, remember blessed. God's favor is upon you. You are whole because you know that I am the Christ. You know that I am the son of the living God. Again, this theme of the living God. This is not the false gods that everyone else worships. The living God. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. How could you? But the road to Zion has been imprinted on his heart. But my Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prepare, prevail against it. The rock that he will build his church on is the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus is the Christ. The Roman Catholic Church has uh, devoted an entire false doctrine to one verse, apostolic secession, that Peter's authority goes on and on and on. And they completely miss the point. The road to Zion is not written on their hearts. They don't see this. Because the whole conversation is about the Christ. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And I will not exegete that now. Ask me later. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. It is only for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see. But if you have it, this is earth-shattering. Everything changes. One of the most important conversations comes up in John 11, very similar, where John heals Lazarus, and his sisters are in, in mourning, and he promises that their brother will rise again. He begins John chapter five, or 11, verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. What's at stake here? Believing in him, the Christ, is eternal life. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who has come into the world. God has looked upon his anointed, his Messiah. And because of that, we can come before him. Through Christ, we are blessed. Through Christ, we will never die. That Messiah. Through Christ, we will come into the courts that we were never allowed to. We were Gentiles. We could not come before the face of God. Through him, we are entered into these courts with praise. And it is these courts 
that the psalmist talks about now in verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Two great comparisons here. One day with the Lord, a thousand elsewhere. Rather be a doorkeeper than dwell in the tents of the wicked. These two comparisons here. Let's think about them for a moment. One day versus a thousand days. Let's say I'm able to do this for you. I'll give you one day off of work, off of everything else, no responsibilities, and the complete presence and protection and perfection of the presence of God. Or I'll give you a thousand days, do whatever you want, and all the pleasures of the world. Let's be honest with ourselves, which one would we take? Don't have to answer that. Make sure you're answering it honestly. We have to ask ourselves, do I desire quality or do I desire quantity? We live in a culture of quantity. Give me as much as I can take. Give me the all-you-can-eat buffet of gluttonous consumption. Or do we desire the quality of just a moment in the presence of God? And the priests got this. Because the priests were literal doorkeepers. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. They kept the door. They were servants in the house of God than in the tents of the wicked. The tents of the wicked, they are partying. They're drinking as much as they want. They're having as much sex as they want. They're eating as much as they want. I'd rather be a doorkeeper. I'd rather serve in your house than be served by men. What about us? Would we rather be served? Would we rather serve in God's house or be served by men, serving our own pleasures? Would we rather have the glory of God in just a moment in his presence, the lowliest dog begging for scraps off of his table, or living like a king far away from him? There's a real hard examination that could go on here, because if I look back at my week, like, man, did I live my week like this passage? Did I live my week like I believe that? And I pray that this is true for us. I pray that you desire God's presence, that you desire to be with him in his temple. One day, one moment, Lord, show me your glory. I will serve you forever and ever just to be near you, rather than to dwell in the temple of the wicked. Why is that so good? Why is that so blessed to be there? Verse 11, for, look at what comes before that. Why? For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. Let's look at these attributes of God in this list. He's a sun. He's a shield. He bestows favor and honor. He gives good things to those who walk uprightly. The Lord God. We've talked about this many times, but don't skip it. Every time you see Lord in all caps, it is the divine name. It is, it is Yahweh. It is his covenant name. That God is covenanted with us. That God who protects, the God who I would rather stay one day in than 10,000 outside is because he's made a covenant with me. The God of all eternity has approached me. He's covenanted with his people. And that God, he is my son, S-U-N. He is my light and my life. Everything I need to grow and feel warm and feel, and feel encouraged and have energy. The living God gives me energy. Psalm 27.1 will be up on the screen quickly. It ties together these two ideas. The Lord is the light, excuse me, is my light. And my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, and whom shall I be afraid? Point two, he's a son and he's a shield. He's the stronghold of my life, who shall I fear? He's my protector, he's my de- defender, his people are safe. 
They are warm. They are fed. They, are, they have life within them, and they are cared for. Why can I spend one day with him and be satisfied? Because he's my son. He's my shield. And in his presence, I have his favor. The Greek equivalent is grace, unmerited favor, because of God's good pleasure, not your good works. God, just because he feels like it and he set his love on you, he gives favor. You receive his grace, his kindness, his compassion. The world can't offer that in 10,000 lifetimes. He gives favor and he gives honor. This word kavod in Hebrew it means weighty. It is a distinction that has a lot of weight upon it. It's often associated with God's glory. He puts the weight of his distinction upon you. He honors you. The glory he shares with no other, Jesus says, I want to share that glory with them. The glory of God that that radiates and the seraphim won't even open their eyes. He wants to bestow on his people. And he will, there is no good thing that he will not give them. No good thing does he withhold. This is not just good stuff. Not just the God who gives good presents. This is too narrow if we think material. These are things that are excellent, that are lovely, that are for your, your well-being. True good things that do not wear away to those who walk uprightly. Those who trust in him, those who walk in him, should make us think of Romans 8, 28. You know, the, the, the verse people love on, on bumper circuits, but thinking all of this stuff together. For those who love God, for those who walk uprightly, all things work together for their good. For those who are called according to his purpose. The God who gives good things. That is why the psalmist can end here. And this is a summary of the whole thing. The third blessed. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. That God, the one we've been describing, trust in him because it is blessed just to trust in him. People love to say, oh, I'm blessed if I got a good job and I'm healthy and everything's going well. No, you're blessed when you're broke and you're sick and you've got nothing, but you still trust in the Lord. That is what it means to be blessed. And that is what the psalmist is getting at here. If you trust in him, you are blessed. Do you believe that? I want to close with one last scripture. 1 Peter chapter 2. We've gone through many uh, parallels to this building analogy, which is all throughout scripture, and I'm just scratching the surface. But what does it mean to be blessed? What does it mean to have the blessing of being the household of God? Look at what Peter says. Chapter 2. Picking up in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, this building analogy, makes so much more sense when you understand that this house is built up of living stones. Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. How are you blessed by by trusting in him? You are chosen and precious by him. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. That is what it means to be blessed. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen Precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected 
has become this cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Read into that as you should. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. This is amazing. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. How do we know that we are blessed? We are royal priesthood. We are a, a, a nation of kings. Because he called us from darkness into his marvelous light. Because he is our sun and he, he shines upon us. If you are in his marvelous light, you are blessed no matter what happens in your life. This is what the psalmist get. This is what we should get. And so as we close, I want you to think about the summary of what we've gone through and how you view your own life. What does it mean to be blessed? Because with the psalmist, we should say, blessed is the one who is satisfied in the Lord. Blessed is the one who is strengthened by the living God. Blessed is the one who finds security in the Lord hosts. Because the Son has drawn us to Himself, died for us, that we might be blessed. And we should, in unison, praise God that we can come into Your presence. God, we praise You. We praise You, God, that we will dwell in Your house with You forever. That we are citizens of Your holy city. And that until we reach that, You dwell in us as a temple for Your Spirit. This is what it means to be blessed. This is what it means to be a member of the household of God. Let's pray. Lord, what can we say? Lord, we have nothing to give. Nothing to offer. The only thing we can give, the only thing we can offer is our submission, our praise, our love. Thank you for calling us. Thank you for redeeming us. Thank you that you are the God who shines his light on us. Your shield of protection on us. Your favor and your honor that you spare no good thing. Thank you that you are God who is worthy of our trust, worthy of our faith, worthy of our hope. Help us to be reinvigorated this morning. Help us to leave here singing your praises, shouting your glory. Help us to be a people who do not want to be apart from you for one moment. Help us to anticipate the day when we will be with you forever. See, that is our identity. See, our heavenly home as where we reside. Not in the wood and concrete and stucco that will fall apart, but an imperishable kingdom of your marvelous light. Thank you for bringing us out of darkness. Thank you for calling us by the name of your Son and sealing us with your Spirit. Lord, we love you and we praise you. For you be glory and honor and praise forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.